You've tuned in to a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast. 20 Minutes with Cat Rambo. Hello, literary alchemists. I'm Dave Robison. And I'm Moses Siragar. And you've tuned in to a special episode of the Roundtable Podcast, 20 Minutes With. 20 Minutes With is the chance for us to sit down with some truly remarkable people and explore how they approach their creative process in our never-ending quest to improve our own. Indeed. And and so much momentousness going on just in this in this very moment. Uh, not the least of which is that this is our first recording since our over-a-year-long hiatus. That, of course, is a cause for great celebration across the land. Uh, but not the least of which is that, Moses, I get to, you get, I, I get to co-host with you, which is the very height of badassery, in my opinion. Opinion. Oh, well, thank you so much. And uh, it really is an honor to be on your show. You produce one of the cleanest, most professional, most wonderful uh, interview podcasts out there. Uh, I would know as someone who has done a couple of these. Indeed. Uh, so I am quite the fan of your work, and it's an honor to, to be your wingman today, Dave. I appreciate that, man. And and dear friends, I'm, I'm going to turn the mic over to Moses for just a moment. Some of you may have been living under a rock and not be aware of who this awesome gentleman is. So Moses, it's it's time to blow your own horn, man. Uh, uh, tell us tell us what's, what's, what is so fabulous about yourself, sir. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you, Dave. Thank you. So... Uh, few of y'all may have heard of me before because I am a co-host of Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. And awesome. Also, yay, I, I, I was listening to your Mary Robin at Koal episode today, actually, and you, met, you referenced Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. So Absolutely. I did a little, did a little fist pump uh, when you mentioned <laughs> that. But uh, uh, also a show called Hide and Create, which is a newer show. So uh, Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, we interview people like Cat Rambo, actually, um, and we do it we do it our own way, obviously. And and it's, it's that show's been going on for quite a long time. Uh, it's won a Parsec Award way back when, before I was a part of it. Uh, Sean Farrell did great job for many years with that. So I've, I've, I've been a part of that, and I've interviewed lots of interesting people and best-selling science fiction and fantasy authors. And I'm also currently a part of Hide and Create, which is a, uh, a show with four of us in a roundtable format. And honestly, I would say it's not terribly unlike writing excuses. In other words, we talk about the craft and business of writing. Okay. Uh, but our little thing is that we have one indie one traditional published author, uh, one editor, and one tie-in writer. Oh, I'm so, sure there's no contention at all at that table. Yeah, we, we get we get <laughs> lots of nice contention. It's, it's it's good. Although I, you know, he, they got to goad me to fight a little bit sometimes. I don't really like to fight anybody, but you're but, a lover, uh, not a fighter. I yeah, understand. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so you may have you guys may have heard of me because I, I do that sort of stuff. I'm also uh, an author, so I write epic fantasy currently. My first novel is The Black God's War, which is I've uh, been very successful as an indie novel. It's a standalone novel. Although it is also part one of basically a, an upcoming trilogy, it's the prelude to my upcoming trilogy. But the Black Gods were sold like close to ten thousand copies, and has had had a lot of nice Amazon reviews, and uh, it's done really well. Won an award for the uh, best indie fantasy novel of the year in twenty twelve. Outstanding. Yeah, this was a fun thing I, I got to do. So anyway, so I write. I love writing. I'm a craft guy. It's one reason Dave and I like each other is we're both <laughs> craft guys. And, uh, and devilishly just, handsome, that too. Hey, you know, I mean, Dave <laughs> is super, super devilishly handsome. So yes, that is absolutely true. Um, so that's a little bit about me. Now, you've got a Kickstarter coming up, don't you? I do. And I think by the time our listeners hear this, chances are the Kickstarter will be live. Uh, so it is a Kickstarter for generating the uh, the necessary monetary mojo that I need to push the Ninth Wind, which is my new novel, Sweet. Uh, which is yeah, it's um 
book one of my new trilogy. The trilogy is called Splendor and Ruin. It follows five years after the events in the Black Gods War. So I have this Kickstarter, which is to help me pay for David Farland as my content editor, Deanna Hoke as my copy editor, Kareem Fakari as my cover artist, and all of the things that I need to do in terms of advertising and promotion and proofreading and everything else I have to do to make this book uh, the success. I'd like to make it to be and tell a great big epic story. So You got a that, URL for that bad boy? Uh, do we? I don't have it yet. Okay. All right. Well, by the time this thing airs, you will. You'll get it to me, and I'll tuck it into the liner notes. Sweetness. sweetness. Outstanding. All right. Well, Moses, uh, uh, that said and that done, I would like to introduce you to our guest host, if I may be so bold. Now, I haven't done this in a while, so you're going to have to bear with me. But just sit back and relax. All right, now. All right. So, so L. Timur Duchamp once had this to say about our guest host. Although her hair color is subject to radical change without notice, everything else about her seems remarkably constant. And I think as I recount the adventures of her life, you'll find that is absolutely true. Now, Moses, let me ask you just real quick. How old were you when you first read The Hobbit? I read it to my son, who is now seven. Oh, geez. He, he was probably four or five at the time. So actually, I skipped The Hobbit until I had a son to read it to. Oh, geez. You were a late bloomer. <laughs> for, for me, it was around 15 or 16 when I started mainlining Tolkien and, and Howard and Moorcock. But our guest host started when she was around seven years old. Now she did your son right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And 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 she and our guest host did have the most awesome freaking babysitter in the universe who started reading The Hobbit to her when she was in the second or third grade. Now apparently she got pretty wrapped up in the story, and I have this image of her mounting a campaign to get mom and dad out of the house so the babysitter <laughs> would come back and read more of the story. Now, I don't know whether that's true or not, but eventually she took matters into her own tiny hands and started reading the book on her own at seven years old. Now, at the age of eight, she had her first fiction sale. Now, the fact that this first sale was a sad little emo poem should not overshadow the fact that our guest host was getting paid for her words when she was eight years old. Now, there were, of course, other influences weaving the threads of destiny for our guest host, not the least of which was her grandmother, Helen Francis, who wrote YA sports stories. Now, when our guest host was around 12, her grandmother gifted her with her first copy of Lord of the Rings and her first typewriter. Not especially subtle, and the family pretty much assumed that our guest host would be following in, in her grandmother's footsteps. Now, this is all happening in South Bend, Indiana, uh, and while I'm sure there are many five qualities of that municipality, there were only two places that held a special place in our guest host's heart. Now, Moses, guess which two places in a town would capture the heart of a young aspiring writer? I'm going to go with library and movie theater. Close. Very, very close. Library, yes. Uh, and library was a, was, a, was a challenge because our, our guest host burned through all the kid fiction and they wouldn't let anyone under 13 check out books from the adult stacks. Ooh. Exactly. Big boo. But that's okay because she spent a whole summer working her way through the fairy tale and folklore section, seeding her imagination with fertile mythologies that would emerge in so many of her tales to come. Now, the other place, while not a movie theater, it was, what would be your second guess? Uh, the local game store? 
<laughs> yeah. Well, actually, it was a bookstore. Okay. Uh, okay. It, was, it was the Griffin Bookstore, to be precise, a sublime place that not only sold books, but role-playing games. Yes. Okay, okay. Uh, there, there we go. Exactly. You were on it. You were on it. While the other kids were hanging out at the mall, our guest host was rolling 20-sided dice with their cronies at Griffins. Uh, and this passion for gaming and nerdish pursuits would last for decades. Uh, one of her early stories was some epic X-Men fan fiction uh, modeled after the John Byrne era of those Mighty Mutants, which is just another affirmation of her exquisite and refined taste. <laughs> uh, and rumor has it that at one point she had a gaming session instead of a bridal shower. Now that's hardcore right there, I'm telling you. Uh, now, her mother was also one of her many supporters, uh, supporting her writerly aspirations every step of the way, including paying the application fees for the John Hopkins writing seminars where our guest host got her MA degree. And her husband is also a veritable Hercules of support and encouragement. And interesting sidebar, during their grad school years together, our guest host and her spouse had no television. So they would entertain each other by reading classical literature to each other aloud and even have potluck dinners and then shove Shakespeare plays into their guests' hands so that they could read the plays after supper, which is just awesome. She was also deeply involved in the Armageddon mud, which has the distinction of being the oldest mud on the internet, uh, first as a player, then a staff member, and eventually writing for the game. But, dun-dun-dun, all this computer geekery kindled a dark and unnatural hunger in our guest host. And for 10 years, she worked in the tech industry, working for Microsoft and immersing herself in the network security field. But, dun, 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 her husband, a vigilant and keen-eyed confidant, knew his wife's true heart was in writing, and he encouraged her to attend the Clarion West Writers' Workshop in 2005. Now, since then, she has had over 200 titles published in all the usual places and received a 2012 Nebula Award nomination for Five Ways to Fall in Love on Planet Porcelain, which is a marvelous tale and was recently featured on Escape Pod a few months ago. Uh, now, like the jewel that she is, writing is just one of her radiant facets. In 2007, she sold a story called The Dead Girl's Wedding March to the online magazine Fantasy. Now, at World Fantasy Convention later that year, she met the editor, Sean Wallace, who coincidentally enough was looking for a co-editor. Several people had recommended our guest host for the spot, and Sean showed the keen literary savvy to bring her on. And she would go on to receive a World Fantasy Award nomination in 2012 for her editorial work there. And there are those who have said they would rather be rejected by our guest host than any other editor in the industry. So, we've got writing, we've got editing, oh, but wait, there's more. Destiny intervened again when our guest host was asked to take over teaching a class in writing fantasy and science fiction at Bellevue College when Louise Marley, the course instructor, decided she didn't have time to do it. No great shock to learn that she was a huge smash with her students. And when her geek radar twigged on the awesomeness of Google Hangouts, she started teaching online classes, which she continues to do to this day. She teaches at Bellevue College and has also taught for Clarion West, the King County Library System, Fields End, and the Hopkins Center for Talented Youth Program. What else? 
Well, let's see. She's read stories with Samuel R. Delaney. Her favorite comfort food is macaroni and cheese. She maintains an epic Pinterest board with almost 5,000 pins on it. Yes, I counted. And if she were a candy, she claims she would be a plain Hershey bar. Dear friends, please join me in welcoming to the big chair at the round table, Cat Rambo. Cat, thank you so much for taking time out of what I can only assume is a veritable froth of activity and creative mojo to join us here at the round table. Dude, I'm going to pay you to just call me up once a week. Because <laughs> that, that was awesome. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Uh, I, I, if I haven't achieved, if you aren't just a little creeped out, I don't think I've done my job. <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> Well, you have been reading the interviews, and you've been reading all sorts of stuff. I'm I, really impressed. I have, I have. Well, and it's a fascinating life, and I want to dig into the to the psychosis, not the psychosis. What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, uh, the psychology that has uh, spawned from such an awesome background. Uh, uh, so, first and foremost, I gotta ask: five thousand pins on Pinterest, yo? Uh, you know, those those mount mount up. And I like social media, so I started pinning stuff on Pinterest when it first opened up. And I will sit around when my spouse and I are watching television in the evening, and I'll have my iPad open, and I will pin pictures either. Well, sometimes some of some of them are for story ideas, but a lot of them are just pictures of kittens or babies. Well, and that's what I noticed. I noticed that several of your pin boards are actually like visual palettes for stories. Is is that yeah. part of your process? Yeah, I've been doing that lately, and it's because my stories tend to cluster. Um, so I have like a bunch set in this sort of alternate steampunk America. I've got a bunch set in a specific uh, fantasy world. I've got a bunch set in a sort of mutated version of the housing complex I live in. And so, yeah, I've been doing uh, storyboards. Sometimes if there's textures I want to remember, uh, it's just a way of kind of keeping notes. And I, I found it helpful, actually. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Well, and, and dear friends, just so you know, I have started the timer. We have 20 minutes with Cat Rambo. We're not going to waste it. Um, Cat, you uh, uh, had mentioned, uh, you're right, I, I read a bunch of your interviews and some of your blog posts. And on uh, Alex uh, Della Monica's blog, uh, Words and Pictures, you, you were mentioning this, in, I think it was in response to writer's block, but you said, uh, learn to trust that hidden side to supply you with details you can excavate in rewriting. Learn to collaborate with yourself. And you used that magic word, collaborate, which around here at the round table is, is pretty much our bread and butter. I was wondering if, if you'd be willing to wax rhapsodic for just a little bit about what you mean by collaborating with yourself. Absolutely. Um, what I mean is when I first sit down to write, I, I do it in, in one of a couple of ways. And one is a very prepared way where I've actually spent some time thinking and maybe mapped out the story and have a, a sort of flow chart of how it's going to go or a list of the scenes. And mm. the other way is just to kind of have some impulse behind the story, like a particular scene or person or whatever, where I just sort of sit down and write. But either way, th the first thing to do for me in writing is to sit down and write. And then I put the story away for a week or two. And when I come back, I look to see what my unconscious has inserted and you know because one of the things that happens is stuff sort of swims into view as you begin to write about it you're writing about a desert and suddenly you're like oh there's a bunch of cactuses oh maybe they're sentient cactuses you know you <laughs> it's so uh, you know you 
go back and you find out the details that got inserted and you make the most of them. Uh, and and I, I've stolen this idea from Stephen King, who talks about excavating the details in a story. And I love that image because that's that image of, of kind of going through with a little brush and just sort of, you know, getting rid of all the grit and, and letting those details shine. And really and, allowing your subconscious to, yes. to, to feed those, those details. Yes. And the yeah. more that you listen to it, the more it will supply is what I have found. Is there a way, do you think, that to foster that, to, to awaken that, that subconscious detail provider? Oh, oh, sure. I mean, I, I, just sitting down and writing is the best way that you can do it. And, and sitting down and doing time writings or sitting down and keeping a journal or just sort of sitting down and writing for the sake of writing. And, and your, I think subconscious will at first write, I don't know what to write, I don't know what to write, I don't know what to write. And then at some point it, it starts uh, frothing up interesting stuff. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, this reminds me of... I was at a recent workshop, a novel rewriting workshop with David Farland, mm-hmm. uh, where he, in um, St. George, Utah, and he he he's told, said something interesting that he says that he'll go to bed and he'll tell his subconscious what he wants it to work on, so that he can wake up and start writing it first thing in the morning. And so he'll literally let his <clears throat> subconscious figure out what he's going to write while he sleeps, and then he'll wake up. and I think he said the key was to get to it as quickly as you can, yeah. uh, so that that download information is still right there. Um, it was just another way that someone might access that that um, subconscious material on a on a book. That's interesting. I, I've always found that kind of dialogue. I, we've we've had Mike Cole on the show uh, yeah. a couple of times, and and Mike he he waits for his actors on stage to do something, and they don't. Uh, he's a much more active. Uh, uh, I'll say manipulator of, of plot and story and character. And he does it beautifully. Uh, but, but that notion of, you know, Moses, what you're describing, the, the, almost the, the, the other person that treating your subconscious as somebody that isn't you is, is, kind of strange to me I, I think well one thing to remember is everybody's writing process is different and anytime true. you hit any writing instructor who says this is the one true way and if you don't do it you're a poop head you should punch them in the eye <laughs> you know but you heard it here first friends that, that's it cat, adv- <laughs> cat advocates violence but but i think you know so everybody's process is different but sure. i i know that sometimes for people who are stuck, you know, they, they go off and they, they drive around and around or they, you know, wash a bunch of dishes or paint a room or just fish or whatever. And, and I think they're subconscious. And then they'll be like, oh, I understand the solution. And mm-hmm. I think that is your mind kind of going to work on it while you're not focusing on it. So it's almost a yeah. matter of faith. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if, if I can speak to that too. Sure. The subconscious is a, a part of quote unquote you, uh, you know, defining. Oh, yeah. Defining you is, you know, uh, the subject of enti- entire religions. You know, I mean, certainly entire to, podcasts. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Who am I? You know, you know, we could, we could go on for quite a while with that one. So, um, but this, yeah, the subconscious is, you know, it's it's like a repository of great stuff that you're not always consciously in touch with, but it's there and it's there to serve you. And I, I agree very much with Kat that if if you will be patient with your process and look at the story and continue to read it, continue to edit, your subconscious will, eventually you will see something that's been in front of you the, the entire time perhaps. And you'll realize that character that you've been stringing along uh, for so long, you realize the significance of that character is so much more than you had thought and it, and it, it was necessary and this happened and oh, that, yeah. thing, that, that thing that they picked up in the third chapter and you weren't really sure why your subconscious insisted on them picking up that thing 
now you know why they have it. And it's just <laughs> it's almost myst- it almost is mystical. Yeah, yeah it, you're 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 chiseling this a slab of marble, revealing a statue within the stone. Awesome. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Cat Rambo after this brief promotional break. Mankind was denied the stars. All attempts to break the speed of light failed horribly, until one small ship, faced with certain death, again dared the impossible. An unprepared crew, trapped around a dying sun, beneath a sea of alien stars, and they're not alone. Read or listen to this serialized science fiction adventure at servingworlds.com. Welcome to Far Lost. Now, let's get back to the conversation with Cat Rambo. Cat, I wanted to uh, redirect the conversation for just a moment. Uh, uh, in in several of the interviews that I read in preparation for, for having you on, um, you had raised the issue of uh, uh, class being not especially well served in the context of, of spec fic, uh, uh, fantasy, science fiction, genre fiction in general. And I agree with you. Uh, it's it, with with all of the the diversity uh, issues that have been been raised. Class really isn't one of them. And yet, in in light of current events, it seems like class would be the first thing on on people's plates when they're frothing to to take the pen sword to the page and 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 write about it. Uh, could could you could you expand a little bit on on what you're seeing in terms of of that disservice and and maybe some suggestions on how we could address it? Well. I, I do see some people working with class. Uh, I think that uh, David Anthony Durham's Acacia Trilogy, for example, uh, deals a lot with uh, class stuff. And I think that there's a lot of kind of grittier... I, I think that, it, in fact, the grimdark, all the grimdark stuff is sure. often about the, the mercenary soldiers instead of the, the generals. And so you've seen a, a movement that way. But there's also there's a lot of science fiction where, boy, it's 500 years in the future, and apparently everybody's made out of money, because they are, <laughs> you know, they're, they're just, and they're expending, you know, vast amounts of energy, and they're doing science all over the place, and it's just, there's no, you know, it maybe in the future this an inexhaustible source of energy gets discovered, but it's more interesting, I think, if it doesn't. Um, and, and there is this, this is sort of very homogenous future, uh, that I see envisioned, and and it's not just homogenous. You know, they, sometimes there's lip service, right? There's a, somebody with a Hispanic name floating around, or or you know, the character has dreadlocks, but everybody is the same class, and there's no there's no and, and money is such a it motivates us, right? It's one of the big motivators. So why sure. are people leaving that out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you do you find in your in your as you evolve your stories, uh, do you give special attention at some point in your process to ensuring that the the economic strata of this, the world that you're presenting is authentic? Well, I think I try to think about what are the resources of the situation because if you know what is it, what is scarce and what is plentiful, you know so much about a world, and you know what problems are coming up, and you know the the shape of the religion, and you know the shape of the legal system and the government. Because all, I I will argue, the economic shapes all of that. Okay. Okay. Moses, I, I wanted to ask in relation to this uh, because, because really, we've we've kind of drifted into the into the world of world building, uh, uh, and and that is one of the biggest dangers for me because I love it and it tends to actually separate me from from 
the wonderful characters that that should be populating that world. Is that something that you wrestle with at all? Oh, there's so many elements to good world building. There was a fantastic economics panel actually at Phoenix Comic Con, which I recently attended, and uh, Ellie Modisit was on the panel uh, along with Scott Lynch, and uh, there's new guys at Pierce Brown, um, very popular author right now. Um, a new guy. And uh, there was a, I think Jason Howell was there too, but he said, economics isn't really my thing, so I won't say too much in this panel. <laughs> so. But but Jason has also written a book where he has all these scavengers. I mean, Jason's, Darwin's elevator is, is deeply <laughs> classy influenced. I mean, he was, he was very humble, you know, and uh, he allowed other people to do most of the talking. So, um, yeah, so, it, it, you know, it's, there are many good elements to world building. Like my, I tend to be, my background is more in things like mythology, religion, mm-hmm. hi- history, a little bit, philosophy, perhaps. Well, that's your degree, uh, isn't it? Uh, religion is my yeah. bachelor's degree, you know. Okay. And yeah. so, you know, the things that I tend to put into my world to make the world building uh, as vivid and great as it can be tend to be along those lines, uh, cultural things, family things, coming up with, you know, unique cultural idioms and uh, ways of thinking, you know, a new world where characters think in terms of three and nine in terms of, you know, a lot of things. So um, economics is an area where I want to put more conscious effort into improving the work. It's it's an important element. And I think if I ever write a super ginormous epic fantasy story where you want absolutely everything in that world to be as believable as possible, rather than what I write now tends to be a little bit more fast-paced. So I don't necessarily have to flesh out the banking system. Um, <laughs> yeah. It is it is epic, but it's not. It, it's kind of faster-paced epic. So um, yeah, so I do wrestle with questions like uh, economics, but even just that panel that I attended, you know, one of the things that I learned is that there's a reason why we have currency systems based on copper, silver, and gold, for example. Okay. Um, El, you know, Ellie Modisit was talking about this, that, you know, those are useful metals. And so they have a certain value intrinsically. And so if you veer away from those as your core currency, you better have a really good reason to do it. So that's an example of one thing I learned at that panel. Interesting. Interesting. Now, now, Kat, your stories are are fraught with with such rich character arcs and and evolutions and heartbreaking or joyous. Uh, do do you find the lore of world building ever ever distracting you from those those core character clusters that that you evolve? Well, sure. It's whenever I start thinking to myself, this would make a great game setting. There you go. I, I, whenever I start kind of making those sort of tables, I'm like, oh, I'm into the cat giving <laughs> section of the day, so I can stop. Now. No, I mean, I, and honestly, I, and I would love to do a, a Wild West game set in the thing I've been doing stories in, but yeah, I, I just I can't take on a campaign much as I would love to run one. So, <laughs> How long yeah. has it been since you've been gaming? Um, well, not I, I pick it up every once in a while, but it's mostly you know, like tabletop uh, settlers of Catan or Cards uh, Against Humanity and that sort of thing nowadays. Uh, but I've been running a Storium game actually. Ooh, very cool! It's, it's I'm, I'm doing it's a, a modern day Seattle a paranormal one. And if people are interested in looking at what we've done so far, I've been away, so it's a little bit on hiatus. But we're about to sort of kick it into gear again. I think we're in, into the second scene. Uh, if you just view Cat Rambo on Storium, you can see what we've done so far. Outstanding. Uh, and I was so delighted to see that Kickstarter made it. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. That That's a great affirmation. And, I, and I, I, I can't wait to see where that whole framework goes. That's brilliant. Just yeah, brilliant. So K- Kickstarter may be a good segue for something I was thinking to ask you, um, Kat. And it's just, it's a super generic question. It's something that uh, affects everyone who's, who's involved with publishing. The sort of 
independent revolution, right, toward ebooks and all of that. Um, in terms of your own work, now you're an editor, you write short stories, uh, you teach workshops. Um, how has the rise of independent publishing changed your world and your, your career and your work? Ooh, big question. Oh, that is a huge question. I think that's a question that everybody's trying to figure out the answer to right now. Um, I can say that I think that self-publishing is becoming more and more important. Because I, I, Well, I self-published a book last year. I, I did my first uh, nonfiction book on creating an online presence, and I self-published. And I learned a lot from that. And one of the things that I've learned from self-publishing is – you know, you have to be willing to put in a lot of extra effort. Uh, so for the writers who are willing to put in a lot of extra effort or the writers who are very prolific, self-publishing is great. Uh, for the people who want to just sort of hand it off to someone and, and you know, to sort of drop their baby manuscript on in the bulrushes and let somebody else pick it up downstream, <laughs> uh, you know, or, or somebody who writes very slowly, right? You know, because we do have uh, some writers who write beautifully, but very, very slowly. George R. R. Martin. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's not invoke that. Sorry, carry on, please. <laughs> so, yeah, and, and I think, I, and I, I love, one of the things that uh, Sifwa is doing, uh, which is the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America, because I'm the incoming vice president is that right now we are looking at admitting self-published uh, writers. And really? so we are, we've invited the members to comment on that and we're getting feedback and the board is talking about it and it's, it's going to move slowly because this is CIFA and <laughs> we move slow, but I'm really hoping to see some sort of resolution on that uh, by the end of the year. And that, that may be insanely hopeful of me, but if not by the end of the year, I expect to see it next year for sure. What has the response been from the membership along those lines? Um, well, it's, it's very mixed. Um, <laughs> you know, well, you know, there's a lot of different groups within CIFWA. And what's interesting is there's a lot of people who are making substantially more off self-publishing than they are off traditional publishing, but they've qualified uh, for CIFA on the basis of, say, you know, like a, a short story sale or, you know, one, they, they had one novel published with, with uh, you know, a traditional publisher, but in the meantime, they've got like 30 self-published and they're, you know, <laughs> Hugh Howie standard sort of stuff. Sure. Um, so, th and then those people, I think, are uh, very interested. And I think that the members that are already there that are interested in self-publishing would love to have more people in there to tell them what to do. Uh, particularly older writers with a lot of backlist where, you know, they want to know, how do we get the, how do I get the rights back? How do I put it back out into circulation and, and have it making me money? Yeah. I can see that being hugely valuable. Yeah. 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 Well, I'm, I, I'm applauding you because I've been, you know, I'm, I'm an independent author. I mean, I've mm -hmm. sold nine to 10,000 copies of my first novel, uh, yeah, but never, yeah. I, haven't, I haven't written a short story since like high school, essentially. So I'm not going to get those other sales to ever qualify for CIFA yeah, membership. Yeah. Until I'm picked up by a publisher or whatever, you know, like yeah. so it, it's it's really good, and I understand why there would be like some resistance to moving in that direction, but I, I'm applauding. It's it's a good thing. Absolutely, yeah. and and speaking of of short and long fiction, cat the, the the bulk of your canon is is largely short fiction. Uh, uh, you you I you're working on a novel. I actually I have a novel out there. If there's okay. any publishers listening and want to <laughs> <laughs> talk to me about the first of a first of a four fantasy quartet please drop me a line 
Um, yeah, I, I, and I'm working on a YA novel right now. Okay. Uh, well, I've written, I've written a few novels, just I haven't sold a novel yet. Okay. Well, you, you definitely, you, you've, you've stretched your legs in, in the short fiction arena yeah. uh, very gracefully. Uh, is, is there a preference for you, do you think, or is it, is it just more of a matter of practicality? Um, well, I, you know, one of the things I've always wanted to, to, to be is to be a novelist and so i would like to have a, a novel published it's it's gratifying to have collections of short stories published that's awesome but there's a, a part of my soul that just wants to see an actual novel out there because uh, sure. they're, they're, they're realer somehow and they're more lasting um I, I don't know it was it was very interesting for me making the transition from short fiction to novel because novels are not just expanded short stories right they you know there's like short stories cubed instead of squared <laughs> what were the challenges that you that you ran into in making that transition well with short stories you, you don't really have time to sort of piddle around and with novels you do want to spend a certain amount piddling productively uh, you know, and, and, and Productive having, piddling. you know, that's it, you know, <laughs> showing your character having breakfast and, and increasing your reader's awareness of their, their flaws and strengths or something like that. Whereas in a short story, you know, you might do that in a, in a paragraph, in a novel, you might have quite a bit going on. Take a page or two. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I was again at Phoenix Comic Con, you, you mentioned YA and uh, I was on a, at a panel on editing and there was some great editors there. Ann Sowers was there. She, oh, yeah. among among other people, you know, Jim Butcher is one of the authors right that now. she edits. Uh, Ann Grohl, who edits a guy named George R. R. Martin. Heard uh, of him. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe Beth Meacham. Um, and then uh, from Angry Robot, Lee Harris was there. It was a great panel. Um, they, I, they actually said that young adult is hard to sell right now, that there's so many people writing it that they were sort of discouraging the audience from from that to some extent. Of course, they're going to say, write the story you need to write and tell the story you need to tell. But uh, but they were saying that urban fantasy and young adult were harder to break in with right now than they have been for quite some time. Did they say um, why? Uh, just just too much. Saturation. Just too much. Yeah. Um, urban fantasy may have kind of like fallen a little bit out of favor as well. I'm not sure. Um, too much of a good thing. Yeah. yeah, it happens. Like things go in cycles, you know. So yeah. Yeah. Beth, Beth Meacham was saying, if anyone has a hard science fiction novel with good characters, send it to me. You know, she's, she's at tour. Um, and they were, you know, they were interested in epic fantasy and science fiction. So it almost, I told that to David Farland and he said, oh, it's like the pendulum you know, swung back all the way in the, other, in the original yeah. direction or something. So um, I just thought that would be interesting to some people. So you said, you said YA and I just went right to that panel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I will persevere nonetheless. <laughs> yeah, because you I, I may be joining you. <laughs> I think I may be joining you in writing a young adult after my current series, actually. <laughs> Why, and that interests me because you know, I, I, I am still in the process of, of achieving my first uh, published work. Uh, and, and I know the stuff that I enjoy writing and YA does not fall anywhere in there. And it, it's interesting to me that your, your storytelling voice can, can shift so much from, from a very mature and, and mm, I, I was going to use the word sophisticated, but YA is just as sophisticated yeah. as, as adult. Uh, uh, but, but dealing with those themes and those, those issues that are, that are, typified in the adult or mature whatever we call that after na what what cat what uh, what is it about the ya genre that appeals well last year i read i was part of the norton award jury mm, okay uh, so and that the andre norton award is the award for 
young adult fiction. Right. So I read 243 young adult books. <laughs> and so you were I was saturated. I was saturated. <laughs> so I feel I felt like it was time to write one. And I had I'd actually I'd written a short story and turned it into a workshop and everybody said this is a novel and I was like, "Oh, that is a novel." <laughs> and it, it it's a YA. Uh, okay. So yeah. Well, I, and I can I can see how how immersing yourself in a particular genre would awaken that that creative yeah. desire to create in that genre. It was it was a great experience. There was so much good stuff. There's just amazing stuff being written in YA right now. Okay. Well, Kat, this has been awesome, but the, but the clock that I oh, use no. to, to keep track has actually drawn a knife and is brandishing <laughs> at me, threatening me with bodily harm if I don't cut this short. Uh, uh, so, uh, Kat, this this has been absolutely marvelous. Uh, uh, thank you. Thank you so very much for taking the time and sharing your thoughts. This has been awesome. Thank you. Absolutely. And Moses, uh, uh, my, my kind wingman and, and, and brother uh, from another mother, uh, thank you uh, for, for co-hosting with me. This is this has been outstanding. Absolutely. Looking forward to the workshop episode. I know. So friends, stay tuned. In one week's time, we'll have Moses and Kat back. We'll bring on a guest writer. There will be some serious story workshopping going down in the Roundtable House. Uh, uh, but until then, uh, we're going to bid you a fond adieu. Uh, Moses, any any advice to our, our dear friends as we, as we send them off into the world for another week of writing? Uh, just keep following your bliss, and we'll talk to you guys next week. Right on. Little Joe Campbell goodness right there. And I will, I will follow up, as I always do, with you find what you're looking for, friends. So look for the awesomeness. Look for the good stuff. And I promise you, you will find it. We'll see you in a week. Until then, you guys take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This episode is copyright 2014 by the Roundtable Podcast and released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown, Gary Gold, David Labroyer, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us, visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com roundtablepodcast and on Twitter at writerspodcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.